The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. If you have a Bible, open up to Acts 27 as we continue our series in Acts. We're going to read Acts 27 all the way to chapter 28, verse 15, but we're going to do it in sections. For those of you that don't know, my name is Stephen. I'm the pastor for Preaching and Vision here at the North Campus. And if you're watching online, we're glad you're joining us. And if you're in the Twin Cities, we would invite you to come and join us in person as we worship together as the people of God. I don't think there's uh, any replacement for gathering together in the same room as the people of God. You can watch online and that's good, but we would encourage you to come join us. We're this morning going to look at the second to last message on the book of Acts as we continue our series. So would you join me as we now pray? Father in heaven, we are longing for Jesus to shine forth from this text. We want to see more of your glory. We want to be astounded by your beauty. So come now in the power of your spirit and help us to see what we need to see so that we would be encouraged and edified and convicted and built up so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. On April 10th, 1912, a British luxury passenger ship made its maiden voyage from Southampton to New York City, carrying 2,224 passengers and crew. And it was a ship unlike any other. I had to look this up. Seven foot deep saltwater swimming pool and gymnasium, a Turkish bath, a squash court, and five grand pianos. Why you would need five, I don't know. One or two maybe seems to be enough. But these were unheard of luxuries in 1912. And as many of us know, five days later on April 15th, it struck an iceberg at 11.40 p.m. Over 1,500 passengers and crew died with only about 710 survivors. And this ship was, of course, the Titanic. The, moment, the most famous shipwreck of modern history. Most of us weren't around for this, but a little bit, well, none of us were around for this, (laughs) unless you're just really old here this morning. We won't ask. A little closer to home after the Titanic was the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. How many remember that? Maybe a few more. This was an American freighter ship that sank in Lake Superior during a storm on November 10th, 1975. She was the largest uh, ship on the Great Lakes that carried iron ore. That's when you drive past Duluth and you see all of these uh, piles of gray stuff. That's iron ore. And it would be shipped from Duluth all the way to Detroit and Toledo and other ports along the Great Lakes. The exact cause of this shipwreck and sinking is still a mystery. So before the SS Edmund Fitzgerald and before the Titanic, there was the shipwreck of Acts 27 the Apostle Paul's journey to Rome. And this is perhaps the most epic historical account of a shipwreck 
and perhaps the most significant that we find in the scriptures. And it reveals God's power, protection, and promises in the midst of a storm. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read the entire passage in sections from Acts 27, verse 1, all the way to chapter 28, verse 15. And we're going to trace Paul's journey to Rome. So for, these, for, for the kids among us this morning, this is a long passage. And I want you to imagine that Luke has just smuggled you on board this ship with Paul. And what you get to do is you get to feel the mist of the sea. You get to take a deep breath and smell the sea. You get to feel the nausea flow up from your stomach as the waves continue to toss you. No one vomit, please, this morning. But you also see the hopelessness settle over your fellow passengers. And we get to see God through the eyes of faith in this passage. And so we're going to walk through this passage and allow the main point to emerge from it and to say a few things about that at the end. And so we have five scenes in this journey. First, they sail for Rome. That's verses 1 through 12. Then they get the storm at sea. This is the longest section in verses 13 to 38. Then we get the shipwreck in 39 to 44. And that concludes chapter 27. And then in chapter 28, he gets snake bitten at Malta. Paul does. Verses 1 through 10 of chapter 28. And then they finally arrive in Rome in 11 through 15. And that's where we'll conclude. And as I read each section... This is the question I want each of us to be asking this morning. What is Luke trying to show us about God? Yes, this is about Paul's journey from Caesarea all the way to Rome. But what are we to learn? What are we to see about God in this text? So I'm going to read in scene one, verses one through eight. Look with me in your Bible And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the pew Bibles in the seat in front of you, and I would encourage you to follow along. Chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, as the wind did not allow us to go farther. We sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So, we're going to pause there. First thing we notice is that Paul is in the custody of a Roman centurion named Julius. And if you look back at verse 1, we see the use of we. So Luke is along for this journey. It was decided that we should sail for Italy. Luke is a personal eyewitness. That's why we get all the details in this passage. In addition to Luke, we get Aristarchus, a co-worker of Paul that was mentioned in Acts 19, verse 29, 
in chapter 20, verse 4. So these two brothers are along for the journey, and we're told that Paul is treated kindly by Julius, even given permission to see his friends in Sidon to receive care and supplies. But in these opening verses, we begin to get a sense of the ominous nature of this journey. Look with me at verse 4. It says, the winds were against us. And then in verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days as the wind did not allow us to go farther. And then in verse 8, it says, with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens. And sometimes it's hard to catch all the geography. So if the media team will show the slide, you'll see that they leave Caesarea and they go up to Sidon and then they make a trip to Myra. And then they go through near Sidus and then land at Fair Haven. So that gives you a bit of a sense of this beginning journey. And, and he, Luke tells us fairly quickly they make it all the way to the island of Crete. And, and if we're reading the text, you'll see that in Myra, they switch ships. Do you see that? They jump on a ship from Alexandria. So this would have been a Roman grain ship that would carry about 500 tons of grain and could fit as many as 600 passengers. So this is a large ship that was sent from northern Egypt all the way to Rome in order to supply it grain for all the needs that Ro the Roman Empire had. It probably was maybe about 180 feet by 42 feet wide. And now we come to verses 9 through 12, where Paul gives some unsolicited advice. Look with me at verse 9. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast, or the day of atonement, was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So, what, what's going on in Paul's unsolicited advice? I don't think it's a prophecy because it doesn't tell us it's a prophecy. It's not a vision from an angel like what Paul gets later. I think what it is is Paul is an experienced traveler. He's taken many and multiple missionary journeys. He, he, he's grown up in Jerusalem, but he's a Roman citizen. And so he's traveled extensively. And, and he can kind of see the weather and says, this is not turning out great. And even in this first journey, everything has been with difficulty. And so he gives this general advice. If Paul lived in our day, he would have been an elite diamond or platinum club sailing member. He was racking up the miles, having traveled so frequently. And he says, this is a risky time of travel. And they say, well, let's try to just make it all the way to Phoenix, because that would have been a better place to stay. Now, if you look on the slide, if they show it again, you can see that Phoenix is right along the island of Crete. It's not far away at all. It's about 40 miles, 40 nautical miles to get there from Fair Havens. And yet this is where our story takes a turn for the worse as we now look at scene two. So we're going to look at verses 13 to 38. I'm going to read 13 to 20. So scene two, we get these stormy seas. Follow along with me in verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. 
And when the wind was caught and could not face the wind, we gave away to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island named Kata. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And now verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now, this passage has all sorts of nautical terms that would be really interesting to draw out. But lo and behold, I've never sailed a single day in my life. But I did some research. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to get to Phoenix. And they said, oh, we just got some gentle southern winds. And then all of a sudden, hurricane forces leap upon them and they're driven out and carried out to sea. And what this section does is it describes three emergency measures that they take to not get driven out too far. You see in verse 16, they secure the ship's boat. So this would have been the lifeboat that would have been attached by a rope and dragged along. And so they bring it up on board. The second thing they do in verse 17, they use supports or cables that would have run along or under the hole to make sure none of the planks would get jarred loose and let water into the ship. And then they lowered the gear which is probably not the anchor, but probably the main sails, so that the wind wouldn't carry them too far. They don't get blown too far off course. They don't want to go south to Sirtis in northern Africa. But things get worse. We see in verse 18, they eventually toss the cargo. Verse 19, they throw over the ship's tackle. Basically, we're getting rid of everything that we don't need that isn't essential for the journey. And we begin to see the ominous, the treacherous nature of this trip. Everyone is thinking, we're going to die. This is not good. You can feel the nausea rising from the stomachs of the sailors and the passengers. This may be our last trip. And then we see verse 20. The sun nor the stars appeared for many days. This would have been their main source of navigation. And no small tempest lay upon us. This is typical Luke fashion of saying, this was a really big tempest. And all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. No hope. We're all going to die. If they had communications, this is where they send out the SOS signals. Now, no one's eaten for several days. And so Paul speaks up again. See that in verse 21 to 26. Follow along with me. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So Paul 
has been promised by God that he would make it all the way to Rome. He's received a promise. And this isn't the first time, this vision. He got this earlier, Acts 23, verse 11, after he testified before the council. It says this, Acts 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him. So Jesus shows up, I think, here. It's not an angel. It's the Lord Jesus. The Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And now Paul gets another vision that reassures him. You're going to make it all the way to Rome. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about the ship. You're going to make it. And not only are you going to make it, I'm going to give you everybody else. Everyone else is going to make it that is in this boat. What we see here emerging from this text is God's sovereignty. And not only his sovereignty, though, but his power and protection for Paul. Paul now calls them in speaking up, telling them to eat. He calls them to anchor their souls in the midst of a great storm in something other than their sailing ability, in something other than the wisdom of the captain. He says, anchor your souls in this promise that I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ, from the God that I serve. I believe it's going to happen exactly the way that he has told me. Now, We're going to keep going. I'd love to pause there, but we're going to keep going. We've got to get through all of this, and we're going to come back to this. Verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. Maybe just pause here for a second. What's a fathom? A fathom is a span of about six feet. So if they let down the anchor as they're pulling it up, uh, a sailor might check their wingspan. So that would be one fathom, about six feet. So they take a fathom and they found 20 fathoms. They took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So what's taking place? As they're nearing land, desperate measures require, desperate times require desperate measures. And so they took they hear waves in the distance, and so they took a sounding. They, they check the depth, and they realize the water is getting less and less deep. And so they, they let down their anchors, and they pray for day. And the sailors, at this point, try to abandon ship, taking their chances on the lifeboat. This would have been dishonorable, probably would have resulted in death, but it, it begins to illustrate how desperate everyone is in this moment. Every man for himself. And yet, ironically, their plan is undone by Paul, who has a complete opposite perspective. Only if you stay in the boat will you be saved. And so the centurion, this time, listens to Paul, recognizing that perhaps he's been right all along. And so they cut away the lifeboat, and everyone stays on the ship. While everyone else is losing their minds and falling apart, Paul is this picture of calm of confidence in God. Now, verse 33 
of, verse, of chapter 27. Follow along with me. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to all take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Paul urges them to eat after many of them haven't eaten for many days. And he encourages them once again in verse 34, not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. That is such an audacious claim when you look at all the circumstances, when you look at the situation. And yet that is what faith in God allows. When we walk by faith and not by sight, it allows us to see things that we wouldn't otherwise see. All of their circumstances say to them, we're going to die. And yet Paul is able to say, not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And we're in the middle of the sea and our our ship's about to fall apart. This is what it means to see with eyes of faith. And for us this morning, we are people who do not walk by sight, but we walk by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can see through the circumstances around us and say, but God's doing something in this better, greater, more significant. And it's even more significant. What does Paul do? He brings bread, he breaks it, and he gives thanks. This is perhaps for the sailors, for the passengers, the last moment where you want to give thanks. There's nothing to give thanks for. We're about to die. And yet in this moment, what we see is that thanksgiving is a countercultural act of defiant faith and trust. Thanksgiving is a countercultural act of defiant trust and trust faith. When everything around us falls apart, we can say, but God is so good. We can give thanks for his many gifts. The Lord has taken. The Lord has given. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is so striking to thank God for food and bread in this moment. They eat, they toss the rest, they lighten the load, and they're trying to run ashore. What this, a theme that's emerging for us is that the storm reveals the treacherousness of the journey, the perilousness of the journey, and yet the power of God to preserve and to protect his people. Paul has received a promise that he would get to Rome, and God is going to make good on that promise, is he not? Now, look with me at verse 39 to 44. We come now to scene three where we get the shipwreck. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. And at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. 
The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So this third scene is fairly straightforward. They cut anchor. They toss the rest of their gear overboard. They hoist the foresail, the sail at the front, and they're headed for the beach. And then they run aground on a reef. The centurions want to kill all the prisoners because if any had escaped, they would pay with their own lives. And yet, again, we see God's sovereign hand of preservation and protection for Paul. None of them get killed. The, the prophecy The vision that came to Paul in the night is now fulfilled. No one dies. Everyone makes it safely. And so they arrive. Now, this leads us to our final two scenes in chapter 28. And we're going to look at both of those and then come back and and try to understand what are we supposed to see about God. Verse 1 of chapter 28 says, After we were brought safely through, Then we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place, there were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So let's pause there. So they arrive on Malta, a long way off from the original destination of Phoenix. You can see this on the slide. You, you can see they get blown way off course. This is a tiny island, about 18 miles by 8 miles. And as they're drying off, a, a snake comes out, bites Paul, and, and the islanders believe this is divine justice taking place. And yet, Paul suffers no ill, and God continues to preserve and protect Paul, empowering him to accomplish his mission. He's made him a promise, and God is going to be faithful to keep his promise. God never lies. He never fails. He never makes a promise that he does not intend to keep. Now, unfortunately, it seems necessary to to talk about this. Um, This account has led some so-called Christians to incorporate snake handling into their worship. I think we've heard it before. Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. And I think that's just silly. And frankly, it's stupid. We don't read Daniel and bring lions into the sanctuary. We don't read about Balaam's donkey and ride around on an ass. 
That's precisely the error that the native peoples make, that they're living according to superstition. But for Luke's readers, what would come to mind? It would be Luke 10, 19. Behold, these are Jesus' words. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So while Satan might be at work in this storm, might be at work in the winds and the waves, might be at work in the serpent, God has said, Paul, you're going to get to Rome and God will be faithful to keep his promise. You will not need to fear. You will not even feel the effects of serpents or scorpions because I will be faithful to my people. God His promises are true. He will protect and preserve his people to fulfill his mission. And this leads us to our final scene, 11 to 15 of chapter 28. And three months, after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria. So again, this is a grain ship probably from northern Egypt headed to Rome with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Petoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So, after three months, they set sail again, and through God's providence, God's work through Paul in healing people of diseases and the father of Publius, they get all the supplies that they need, and they finally make all their way to Rome. Finally makes it to his long-awaited destination to do precisely what he has been prepared to do, which is to testify to the name and to the work of Jesus. And he's able to stay there in rented quarters under guard by soldiers. So, what's the main point of our passage? Or if we're going back to our opening question, what is Luke trying to show us about God here in this passage? There are a number of things we can see, including God's sovereignty over each and every single event over every obstacle, every, every blow of the wind, every raindrop from the sky, every element of the storm, every serpent that bites. God is sovereignly in control and over all of it. Even so that the serpent's bite is powerless. But I think one of the main takeaways we want to see is that God is preserving and protecting his people according to his promises. God is protecting and preserving his people according to his promises. If you'll remember in our series, the very first sermon in Acts was where we looked at Acts 1-8. And, and what did Jesus say there? You will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and where? To the very ends of the earth. That was the original promise. And God has been true to see that promise all the way through. Rome would have been considered the very ends of the earth. And for us to be sitting here 
We are the very ends of the earth. And there's more ends of the earth still to be reached. And what's the promise that we're holding on to? Is that God will cause the gospel to advance. He will build his church. The gates of hell will not be able to withstand it. And God will protect and preserve his people as they carry out his glorious mission. And that glorious mission will indeed come to pass. Amen? And so that means if there are unbelievers still right now in Afghanistan, in Iran, in Iraq, in Saudi Arabia, and in the island tribes in Papua New Guinea, and we're going to be commissioning some global partners or actually prayer, sending them off again in the second service to Chad, it means that God will still fulfill that promise. He will protect, he will preserve his people so that the gospel goes all the way to the very ends of the earth. And if you're thinking about missions this morning, if you're thinking about going and you're thinking, is God going to protect me? Is God going to protect my family? Do I bring little children, two and three and four-year-olds onto the mission field? Yes, because God is faithful. He will not Go back on his promise. He will send forth his people and preserve and protect them. Luke not only wants us to see God's preservation and protection for Paul, but he wants his readers to see that God is doing this. Jesus is doing this, advancing his church, building his church, advancing the gospel, and he preserves and protects his people. And you might say, well, did he protect Stephen? He did until his time was up. What about James? He did until his time was up. We're all going to die, but not until God says so. And so that's what we need to be reminded about. Luke is revealing that we can indeed rely upon the promises of God in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the shipwrecks, and in the midst of the snake bites of life. For us this morning, we're not literally in a storm. We're not literally in a shipwreck, but we feel perhaps our circumstances not looking the way that we want them to look. And yet this passage tells us the storms of life teach us to trust the one who calms the wind and the waves with merely a word. It teaches us that when the shipwrecks of life come, when things don't go our way, it drives us to trust that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Or when the snake bites of life come, where we're attacked, maligned perhaps, we are taught that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Who? Who can decisively stand against his people? No one. So this passage isn't just to amaze us with seafaring drama. I think this passage is to help us to behold the stunning beauty, sovereignty, and protection and power of God for his people. He will be with us, whether we're Paul with a mission to Rome or we're Stephen with a mission to testify before the synagogue and the council and the religious leaders and then to be stoned to death. Whether we're Peter that gets delivered again and again from imprisonments and beatings, or where James, with one flick of the sword, he's beheaded. 
This text is to call us to trust in the Lord our God. And the pathway of obedience is going to require suffering. I know this is unpopular or foreign, and yet it's true. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so we shouldn't be surprised when that persecution comes, when that suffering comes in the pathway of obedience. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. We see throughout Acts, yes, the church grew. Yes, the gospel advanced. And yes, it came with great suffering. So what will sustain us in the midst of that? What will sustain us when we walk the pathway of obedience and suffering comes? I think this passage makes crystal clear that we're to cleave to the promises of God. Hold on to the promises that God has given us in his word. Promises not just for Paul, that only if you get a very specific commission where an angel shows up and says, you're on the way to Rome, can you, have, can you then have confidence? No. The reason we read the scriptures, hopefully every morning, is because we get to ransack this book every single day. Not out of duty, I guess I got to read it, but we get to ransack it and to say, what promise is there that I might hold before the Lord this morning? What promise is there where I might say, Lord, you wrote it. You said that. You said that I would have joy in you. You said that the righteous will never be put to shame. And hold that before him and say, I know you're faithful. So I'm banking on that promise today. I believe. Take away my unbelief, Lord. So the reason we read our scriptures is because God's word, God's promises is what sustains us through the storms of life. And if you don't have his word hidden in your heart, what promises will you go to in those moments? So are you feeling lonely and alone and isolated? Jesus says to us, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Do you believe that? Hebrews 13, 5. Are you grieving loss and struggling with sadness? We did a funeral yesterday. Jesus promises, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew 5, 4. Are you feeling attacked and maligned and treated unjustly? God has declared, none, none, none who wait for God shall be put to shame. You will be vindicated, if not in this life, certainly in the one to come. Psalm 25, 3. Or this morning, perhaps, you've wandered in. This is your very first Sunday here. You're not a Christian. You're wondering what in the world we're talking about. And and we're saying, put your faith in Jesus. Hope in Jesus. And you think, I've sinned too much. I've fallen too far. I, I, I don't know enough. I don't have the right background. I don't have the right pedigree. I don't have the right resume. I'm too messy. Acts reminds us, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. That's right. Acts 2, 21. Or are you feeling tempted by sin? Paul writes, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can indeed endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 
Or perhaps uh, as the cultural winds continue to shift, you're thinking, how will I testify to Jesus when, when, when that pivotal moment comes? What will I say? I, I'm not eloquent. I don't, have, I don't have words. How do I stand up under pressure? And Jesus said, when they bring you before synagogues and rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. There will be tailored grace specifically in that moment that will not come a minute earlier so that you will see it's not by rehearsing what I'm going to say, but it's by the Spirit of God within me that I get the words so that God would get the glory. Or do you worry about having enough? Jesus said, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Acts 27 and 28 doesn't just revel in the seafaring hero of Paul. But I think this whole passage is pointing us to Jesus. Just see the similarities. Paul is calm and composed in the midst of a life-threatening storm. And do we remember a time where Jesus was asleep in the boat in the midst of a storm and he calms the wind and the waves with merely a word? Be still. Paul breaks bread on the eve of their deliverance, right, when they're about to get off the ship. And likewise, Jesus led his disciples in breaking bread and the Lord's Supper prior to his crucifixion that would ultimately usher in salvation. Paul gets stung after deliverance, gets on the island of Malta. He gets stung by a serpent's bite, but then he has no ill effects. And we know that Jesus looked like he was fatally stung by the great and evil serpent Satan. And yet, He suffered no ill effects, did he not? He rose again on the third day. And on Malta, Paul safely brings all those with him in the boat to safety. And what does he do after? He goes about healing people. And Jesus, by his life and death and resurrection, he has brought all those who are not in the boat, but in Christ all the way through the waters of death so that they would find eternal safety. And what does Jesus accomplish with his death? His blood brings healing and forgiveness of sins. So while Paul is the hero of Acts 27, he's a faint echo and he's pointing to the true and great hero the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the hero we're to look at this morning. This story is driving home that our hope is not in Paul. It's not in anything else. It's not in the captain. It's not in the sailors. It's not in the ingenuity of reading the weather. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the hero. And if we're in him, we will make it safely to the other side. And so the promise that Paul gets from God, where it says, all those in the boat with you will be saved. That's a great promise. 275 other people were saved through that glorious promise. But we have been given such a greater promise, have we not? 
God the Father has spoken to his Son in whom he is well pleased. And he said, all those in you, all those who believe in you, who put their faith in you, who put their trust in you, I will save. I will safely bring to the other side. And oh, that's a lot more than 276 people. And so that is the glorious promise that we get this morning. So let's trust and treasure him as Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, that's our desire this morning, that we would see through the storm, see through the shipwreck, see through the snake bite, and see the beauty and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Enliven our hearts to trust you more, to cleave to your promises, to ransack your word so that we would be built up and encouraged and trust you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.